Well, whenever you're trying to do something of significance, preparation is definitely something that is needed to accomplish that. Uh, all of us have been in school at some point in time in our lives. You have a big test. Uh, if you don't prepare for that test, uh, the likely outcome is that you're going to fail. I'm sure that we have experienced that. I know many times I decided to party or sleep or do something besides study. Uh, I didn't prepare, and the result was failure. Uh, if you have a big project at work, uh, and you better prepare. Uh, you're most likely not going to do a very good job. Uh, if you want to get married, uh, you better prepare to be that godly husband or that godly wife that God's Word tells you to be. But when you get into your marriage, uh, you're not prepared for it. It's going to cause problems. Uh, preparation is definitely very important when you're seeking to accomplish something of significance, and ministry is definitely a part of that. Uh, when you're seeking to accomplish something for the Lord, serving the Lord, ministries and callings that God has given you, preparation uh, is very important in order to be able to do what God has called you to do. Now, the most important and significant ministry ever, by far, was Jesus' ministry. And before Jesus starts his ministry, uh, there was some preparation that needed to take place. And in Luke's chapter 3 and 4, Luke's going to share with us the preparation that needed to happen before Jesus' ministry started. We've seen Jesus' birth. Uh, we've seen a lot of different things uh, when he was young and up to now. But we haven't yet started his ministry. In chapters 3 and 4, they're going to share with us some of the things that needed to be prepared. The first thing that needed to be prepared before Jesus started his ministry was the people that Jesus was going to minister to. If you remember back in chapter 1, we have John the Baptist and that miraculous birth with him where his parents were past the age of having children and God miraculously enabled them to have children. And, and God told them about John the Baptist and about the fact that he was going to have this special ministry to prepare the way for Jesus. Well, who was he preparing? He's preparing the people that Jesus was ultimately going to minister to. Chapter 4, we see that the other thing that needed to be prepared was Jesus himself. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus is going to go into the wilderness. The Holy Spirit is going to lead him there. He's going to fast and pray for 40 days, and then he's going to be tempted by the devil. And that time in the wilderness is a time of preparation. Right after that time, Jesus starts his earthly ministry. And so in these next two chapters of Luke, we have some important things to look at of the preparation that needs to take place before Jesus starts his ministry. And here this morning, we're going to look at chapter 3. We're going to look at a very amazing man in the scriptures, a man by the name of John the Baptist. Uh, Jesus had some very profound things to say about John the Baptist, ultimately that there's been no one greater than John the Baptist born by a woman. So Jesus had lots of great things to say about this man. But let's see what we can learn from John the Baptist's ministry of preparation for Jesus's ministry. Luke chapter 3, starting in verse one, it says this. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Eteria, and the region of Tranotius, and Lasanias, tetrarch of Abilene, while Annas and Caiaphas were high priests, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness." Now, Luke is someone who brings historical context to everything that he's sharing. We notice that uh, already in Luke, he's given us um, a specific historical time frame for when events took place. In Luke chapter 2, he told us that Jesus' birth took place during the reign of Caesar Augustus. Uh, and we looked at Caesar Augustus a bit, and we noticed that he was emperor of Rome from 27 B.C. until his death in 14 A.D., now, when Caesar Augustus died in 14 AD, Tiberius Caesar was the person who took power 
in his place. And Luke tells us these events here in chapter 3 take place while Tiberius Caesar is in power. Now Luke doesn't only mention the person who is mainly in power, the one who is the Roman emperor, Tiberius Caesar. He also tells us of some other people, people that specifically had rule and reign over where Jesus was going to minister, Judea and Galilee. And so Luke also tells us about the high priests, those who ruled over Israel at that time as well. Now, I find this interesting because if Luke just wanted us to know when these events took place, all he needed to tell us was Tiberius Caesar. Uh, okay, we have Tiberius Caesar was ruling, so now we have a time frame for when these events took place. But I think Luke wanted us to know more than just when it took place because he lists seven individuals who were ruling over different places during that time. And I think he shares all seven of these people because he wants us to get an idea of what it was like during the time of Jesus' ministry. Right before Jesus starts his ministry, he wants us to know these were the guys in control. These were the guys ruling. Now, for those people then, just the mention of these people's names would have brought, okay, we know what, what this time was like. You know, Luke's writing after these events took place, and then it's a reminder, oh yeah, Tiberius Caesar, we remember what he was like. Pontius Pilate, we remember what he was like. So, you know, those people would have recognized these names, these rulers, and they would have understood what the times were like. Now, for us... Just the mention of these names, since we didn't live at that time, you know, that doesn't really help us out too much. Uh, and so I want to give you a little bit of what these guys were like so that you can have um, an understanding of what was going on. So the first person that Luke mentions here is uh, Tiberius Caesar. He was known to be one of the cruelest Roman emperors ever in history. Uh, so here's a man who takes over, he's an emperor, he's extremely cruel, uh, and he's the one who appointed Pontius Pilate to be over this Jewish region. Now Pontius Pilate was someone who was renowned for his brutal massacres of the Jewish people. Uh, if you start reading history, you see that he wiped out many, many Jews. Uh, so he was a man who was very brutal, uh, a man that the Jews did not like for good reason. Uh, the next three people that Luke mentions were the sons of Herod the Great. Remember when Jesus was born, Herod the Great was in power. Herod the Great was the one who said, you know what, let's kill every boy under the age of two in order to try to kill off Jesus. He was a pretty brutal guy himself. Well, he had three sons. One of the sons took his name, Herod. Uh, then there was Philip, and there was Lysanias. Uh, and they basically took the rule and reign of their dad, but they got the they kind of got split up. So Herod had a portion of the land and area. Philip had another portion. Lysanias had another portion. Uh, and so they were the ones who took over the rule for their father. And just like their father, they were very cruel. Uh, they were very corrupt. Uh, and, you know, especially towards the Jewish people. So the Gentiles, the non-Jews in power at the time that Jesus starts his ministry, were very corrupt, were very cruel, were very horrible to the Jewish people. And so that's kind of the scene that comes in. The Jewish people are under this rule that is really oppressive, this rule that is coming down upon them, this rule that is horrible to them. And they're desperate for someone to come and free them from these horrible oppressors that are in their life. But Luke doesn't just tell us about the Gentile rule that was oppressing them. He also tells us about two of the Jewish people who were in power. He tells us that Annas and Caiaphas were high priests over Israel. Now, if you know you're in Old Testament, you think, well, wait a second. Why are there two high priests? There's only meant to be one high priest at a time. You have a high priest, he serves, then when he dies, you have a new high priest that comes and takes his place. Why in the world are there two high priests during the time of the start of Jesus' ministry? Well, the Jews, they appointed Annas as their high priest. 
And Annas was very strong on what the Old Testament said. The Roman government, they didn't like Annas. They didn't like the way he did things. And they said, we don't recognize you as high priest anymore. We are appointing Caiaphas as high priest. Well, the Jews did not like the Romans meddling. And so they still viewed Annas as their high priest. But in the Roman government, Caiaphas was viewed as a high priest. And so there had to be two high priests, the ones that the Jews recognized and the ones that the Romans recognized. Uh, and you see, if you probably remember at the time of Jesus, actually on Good Friday, as we'll start looking at that, his trial, he goes and he goes before both of these guys. Uh, and so, uh, but sadly, both uh, Annas and Caiaphas were very corrupt religious leaders. Uh, they were both more concerned about their own power than serving God. Jesus is going to have some very strong words uh, throughout the Gospel of Luke, not only for these two men, but also for the Pharisees that they represent. Uh, and so the religious leaders there were also not really following God, were corrupt men. And so this is a very kind of dark time for the nation of Israel. And Luke kind of, just in mentioning these seven men, gives us a little bit of perspective of the kind of situation that it was as Jesus starts now his earthly ministry very soon. So, Luke here is going to tell us about one in particular man. He gives us these seven men who are in charge, but he says, now there's a man. Notice he says, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. So now John the Baptist comes on the scene. And if you remember the last time we saw John the Baptist back in chapter 1, verse 80, it said, John grew and became strong in spirit and was in the deserts till the day of his manifestation to Israel. Now, when John was born, his parents were told what he was going to be. His parents were told this special uh, calling that he had on his life to be the one that would prepare the way for the Messiah, prepare the way for Jesus, and he would have this special anointing, the Holy Spirit on his life. And so, as a young man, he knew this. And as a young man, we're told he became strong in spirit, and he went out to the desert, out to the wilderness, and there he waited till the day of his manifestation to Israel, until the day that God had him to do that calling that he was told he would do. Now we come to chapter 3, verse 2, and Luke says, now that time's come. John's been in the wilderness, and now it's time for him to come on the scene, for him to do the ministry that God gave him. Now, before we move on, I think there's something important to note here. God's timing is just as important as God's calling. God's timing is just as important as God's calling. You see, God had a specific calling for John. And John knew it at a young age. And I'm sure that there was times where he was like, all right, when is this going to happen? When are we going to do this? But it wasn't God's timing until John was almost 30 years old. And so, you know, he has a long time that he's out there as a young man. He goes out into the wilderness. He's out in the desert. He's probably waiting, thinking, all right, one year's gone by. Lord, is it going to happen now? Two years go by. What about now? Three years go by. You know, he's out there and probably wondering, hey, I know what my calling is. I know what you've given me to do, Lord. When am I going to get to do it? But he had to wait on the timing of the Lord. And sometimes that can be a little bit frustrating for us. But I think something important to recognize, important to understand is that, you know what, when God makes you wait for the calling, he's usually doing that because he's preparing you for that. You know, that time in the wilderness, the time of preparation, that God says, I have a calling on your life, but you're not ready yet to fulfill it. And so I'm going to work in you. I'm going to change you. I'm going to help you grow and prepare you for that calling. We see this through a lot of people that did significant things in Scripture. If you remember Moses' life. 
The first 40 years of his life, he's in the palace. He thinks, you know what? I'm ready. I'm going to deliver the nation of Israel by myself. He goes and he kills that Egyptian guard and ends up getting run out of Egypt. And then for 40 more years, he's in the wilderness. And it's in those 40 years that God prepares him to go back to Egypt and ultimately to help deliver the nation of Israel from Egypt. David, we look at him and he kills Goliath and he's in you know, this high and everyone thinks he's so great. Well, you know what? He had to be led out to the wilderness for years as well before God made him king over the nation of Israel. That time in the wilderness prepared him to lead the nation of Israel. Elijah, one of the most uh, amazing prophets in the Old Testament, also had a time in the wilderness where the Lord had to work on him and prepare him. Paul, a lot of people think Paul got saved and went straight into the mission field and started doing great works for the Lord. Actually, no. He went into the wilderness. He was out by himself for over three years where the Lord worked in him and prepared him for the work that he had for him. And as I mentioned when we started, Jesus also, as we're going to see in next chapter, has a wilderness experience. Goes out into the wilderness, and that's part of the preparation work that God does in his life for his ministry. You know, I felt God's call to be a pastor many years before I actually became one. And the years leading up to that were years of preparation, were years of God helping me grow to be more like Him, helping me grow in specific areas so that I could be effective as a pastor. And then once becoming one, there was still more preparation. I remember when I first got to Scotland, I'm like, all right, Lord, I'm ready to, to see this land turn for you. And, you know, all of a sudden there's this one lady on the first Sunday, and God's like, I still got a lot of work to do with you. Uh, and so I think there's always preparation. We never arrive to a point where we think, oh, I'm fully prepared. I'm good. I don't need any more work. But, you know, that is important, that if God's calling you to do something, that recognize that, you know, it might not be his timing to throw you into it right away. And in that time that you're waiting, instead of getting frustrated and thinking, Lord, when's this going to happen, to instead be thinking, Lord, Lord, what do you want to teach me? How do you want me to grow? How are you preparing me in this time for the ministry that you have for me? Verse 3 says this, And he went into all the region around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough ways smooth. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. So after the word of the Lord comes to John, he's probably thinking, finally, now I get to go and do this ministry, go and do what I've been called to do. He starts and he goes to the region around Jordan, and he starts preaching this message of repentance for the remission of sins. Oh, there we go. So there is the Jordan River, there's the area around which... John the Baptist would have been ministering, would have been traveling, would have been baptizing and preaching. And remember, the purpose of his ministry was to prepare the way for Jesus the Messiah, to prepare the way for him in all different ways. But uh, in reference to John, Luke tells us Isaiah prophesied back in the book of Isaiah about someone who would come. And this prophecy is speaking about uh, John the Baptist. Notice what Isaiah says. He says, the voice of one crying in the wilderness Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough way smooth, and all the flesh shall see the salvation of God. You know, now back in that time, it was very common for a herald 
to come into a place before a king would then follow him to that place. And the herald basically had two different responsibilities. First, he had to prepare for safe and proper travel. So he would go and he would make sure the roadways were smooth, they make sure they were uncluttered, make sure they were safe, he would be filling holes, he would be removing debris, he would be getting uh, unsightly uh, trash and things out of the way because, you know, the king was coming. And the king was going to travel down this road, and so this herald's job was to make sure this road was right, it was straight, it was safe, it was clear, it was clean. And as the group would do all this work, he would be proclaiming, hey, the king's coming, we're getting this ready, the king's coming, he's going to be coming soon, and so the people would know that. So his duty was twofold, to proclaim and also to prepare. And this is a thought that Isaiah is using regarding John the Baptist when he speaks of this person coming to prepare the way for the Lord. That John was going to be like that herald going to come and proclaim, the Messiah, the King is coming, get ready, he's coming. But he wasn't going preparing roads, he wasn't filling holes, he wasn't getting rid of trash literally on roads. He was preparing people's hearts. He was coming and preaching to people because they are the ones that needed to be prepared. It was saying, you know what, you need to get your life correct. You need to get your life prepared for the coming of the Messiah. John's ministry to prepare people for the salvation that Jesus was going to bring. One of the ways he prepared people for that was by preaching this message, this message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now this word repentance that we have here in the Greek is, is an important word to understand. It means to turn away from, to have a change of mind and action. So when you hear that word repentance in the New Testament, recognize that's what it's talking about. It's to turn away from something, to have a change of mind, to have a change of action. John's telling these people, you need to repent, you need to turn away from something. What? You need to turn away from your sin. You need to turn away from that. Stop doing that. That's the, the message that he's bringing. Now, I think it's important to understand that we oftentimes confuse repentance with sorrow or being sorry for something. Sorrow is a feeling of grief or sadness or regret for something that you've done. But something we need to understand is you can be sorrowful and not repentant. You can be sorry that you've done something. You can be sad that you've done something, but not repentant, not turning away from it. And oftentimes we think, oh, I, I've repented. And what we mean is, I'm sorry, I'm sad that it happened, but I'm not actually repentant. I'm not actually turning away forth from that. I'm sure all of us have done sinful things that you know caused us to be sorry, caused us to be sad, but yet it didn't cause us to repent. I remember when I was in seventh grade, I had my mom as my English teacher, and that was a little bit awkward in itself, but um, she gave us this test that, you know, was something that we all needed to do well in, and she expected me, obviously, as her son to do well. Uh, I hadn't studied for it, so I decided, well, i got to do well, so I'm just going to cheat. Uh, and so uh, I started, I was cheating on this, and uh, ended up my mom found out and caught me, and uh, I was sorry. I was sorry I got caught. I was sorry I failed the test, and I was you know, saddened by the consequences that came, but I was not repentant. Uh, I continued to cheat after that. I continued to cheat all the way into my high school years. So uh, it wasn't something that was a repentant thing. It was something I was sorry for what happened right there. And I think too often that's the way we are. It's like, you know what? I'm sorry for the consequences that this brought to my life. 
I'm sorry for, you know, the fact that it's hurt, whatever, but I'm not really repentant. I'm not really at that place where I want to stop doing this, where I want to turn from this. Uh, and that's what the, you know, John is out there saying, you know what, you guys need to repent. That's the message. Turn away from your sins because the Messiah is coming and you want to be ready for him. And so turn away from what you're doing. John's baptism of repentance helped people see they were sinners, that they needed to get right with God, that they needed to be cleansed. It was a, it was a baptism of preparation to get people ready for Jesus. Now this is interesting because the baptism that you and I have as believers is different than the one that John was doing. See, John was trying to prepare people for the coming of Jesus. We get baptized after we've already accepted Jesus. So we're not getting baptized to prepare us for Jesus. We're getting baptized ultimately to identify with Jesus. So there are really two different baptisms. John was in preparation for the coming of Jesus. Ours is just to identify with him. Romans talks about when we get baptized, we're identifying with Christ. As we go down into the water, it's like we're dying being buried as we come back up, the newness of life that we're living for the Lord, just like he was dead and rose again from the dead, which we'll be looking at Sunday. So, so baptism for us is more of an identification, but John's baptism was more of a preparation for Jesus, and so we don't want to confuse the two. So in verse 7 now, we're going to hear how John preached. He's a pretty in-your-face preacher. Notice what he says Verse 7, Then he said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him, Brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the roots of the trees. Therefore every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The message here that John preaches is very direct. It's very in your face. We're told the multitudes come to him and he says, Brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Now, addressing your audience as a family of snakes, that's usually not the best starting point. You know, if you go into public speaking or even in how to teach a sermon, you know, that's, that's not going to be the way that you connect with your audience. You're not going to say, you know, calling people a bunch of snakes is not really the, the typical way to introduce them or asking them, why are you here anyway? You know, that, that's not really you know, the, the way to go. But, you know, he wasn't interested in preaching soft messages or tickling ears. He had a very stern and strong warning for the nation of Israel, and he boldly proclaimed it to them. And notice what he says as he goes on in verse 8. He says, Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not begin to say to yourself, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. Now what he says here is very interesting, because back in this time, the Jews were basically taught, because of what Abraham did, He's the father of the nation of Israel, the first person that God chose. And if you know the book of Genesis, you see his life. And so all his descendants are the descendants of the nation of Israel. And so they figure, you know what, because of the faith of Abraham, because of what he's done, we're good. We're descendants of Abraham. That means we're good with God. We're saved. We're all fine. All we, have, all we need is just to be connected to Abraham. And since we're his descendants, then everything between us and God is good. That was the teaching of the day. That was the thought of the day. Because of what Abraham has done, and because of Abraham's faith, and because of Abraham's relationship with God, we're all fine because we're descendants of Abraham. 
But John basically says to him, don't you dare say we have Abraham as our father, so we're fine with God. For I say to you, God is able to raise up children from Abraham from these stones. Don't think that that's going to be the thing that keeps you, that enables you to be saved. He's basically saying, don't think your salvation is going to come because of what someone else has done before God or because of who you're related to. John wanted his listeners to know that they were personally responsible before God. Personally responsible to repent of their sins and accept the Messiah to save them. Being descendants of Abraham did not get them saved. You know, there's a lot of people with the same mindset today. Just like those Jews who thought, hey, you know what? I'm saved because of the relationship I have with someone else who loves Jesus. Or I'm saved because of some work that someone else did. Um, You know, a lot of people say, you know what? I was baptized as a baby. I'm saved because of it. I was baptized as a baby. My parents did this work on my behalf. I'm saved. I'm good. I'm going to heaven. Well, actually, you have to personally accept what Jesus has done for your sin on the cross. Repent of your sin. Come before him and ask that. And then you're saved. Being baptized as a baby doesn't do anything to save you. Other people say, you know, my parents were Christians. They took me to church as a child, so I'm good with God. I'm saved. Your parents' salvation and going to church doesn't save you. Just because they have a relationship with God doesn't mean you do. Just because you went to church doesn't mean you're saved. Once again, you have to personally accept what Jesus has done for you. You have to confess your sin to him. You have to ask for forgiveness from him. You have to ask him to come into your life. It is a personal decision. Or you could be like me, a pastor's kid. And I know a lot of pastors can think, well, my dad's a pastor. Surely I'm saved just based on the relationship. He loves God. He does all this work for God. Well, just because my dad loves God doesn't mean I love God. Just because my dad's a pastor doesn't mean all of a sudden I'm a Christian. I have to personally come to the same thing that he did, to accept Christ, to live for Christ. And so too often today we have the same mindset as the Jews. We think, hey, because of what someone else has done, or because of someone else's relationship with God, all of a sudden now we're good with God. We're saved. But John's message and the message of the Bible is no. Each individual person has to accept the Lord for themselves. When you stand before God, you can't say, let me in because of what my parents did. Let me in because of this person or that person. Ultimately, I should get into heaven because I personally have accepted what Jesus Christ has done for me. That is the only reason as I stand before the Lord. John understood this, and it was part of his ministry to get people to understand. You have to personally repent of your own sins. His ministry was to prepare people for Jesus and the salvation that Jesus would bring. And he shot down this confidence that the Jews had of well. We're descendants of Abraham. We're all good. No, you're not. God could raise up descendants from Abraham from these stones. That doesn't mean anything. You must personally accept the Messiah. Personally repent of your sins. He was definitely an in-your-face, tell-it-like-it-is kind of guy. Some people loved him. Some people hated him. But the message he taught was true. And the message he taught needed to be heard to prepare people for what Jesus was about to do. Now, the message that we're sinners and need to repent of our sins really is an essential part of the gospel to prepare people for the good news. You see, when we, the word gospel means good news, and oftentimes all we do is go straight to the good news. Hey, the good news is that Jesus died for your sin on the cross. The good news is that Jesus took the punishment that you deserve. Isn't that wonderful news? Yes, it is, but only if you first understand the bad news. Now, imagine if I came to you and I said, you know what, uh, you have a terminal disease, but you didn't know it. You have a terminal disease, you don't know you have a terminal disease, but I have the antidote for your terminal disease. And I come to you and I say, hey, I'm all excited, I have the antidote for your terminal disease. And you say, what are you talking about? 
There's nothing wrong with me. I don't need that antidote. I don't have any problems because you don't know that you have this disease. That's the same thing that happens when you come to people who don't understand the bad news. You say, oh, I have this antidote for your sin, Christ, and what he's done. Isn't this great? Isn't this good news? And they say, what are you talking about? I'm a good person. There's nothing wrong with me. My good's going to outweigh my bad. I guarantee you talk to most any person, they think of themselves as good people. They recognize I do bad things here and there, but my good is going to outweigh my bad. And when I get before God, I'm only going to say, hey, I've done all this good. I might have done a little bit of bad, but surely my good's better, and therefore you're going to let me in. There's this mindset of, I'm not really this horrible sinner that deserves judgment. And until someone recognizes their sin and recognizes the consequences of their sin, then the good news isn't good news to them because they don't understand the bad news. And too often, we're not giving the full gospel because we're leaving the bad news out. Well, that's a little bit offensive. Hell, we don't want to talk about that. Sin, we don't want to talk about that. Well, it's biblical. They need to hear it. They need to understand it because if they don't understand they're sinners and the consequence of their sin is hell, then the good news isn't really that good because it's like, well, why do I need Jesus to die for me? I'm a good person. I've done it all. So they first have to recognize that. And I think just like John, we have to be those to bring the full message. First telling people, hey, the Bible's clear. And don't just point the finger at them. It's like, we all are sinners. I am too. I'm no better than you. I just accepted the salvation that's in Christ. We're all sinners. The Bible says it. Help people to start with that premise. And then, hey, but the good news is, here's what Jesus has done. Here's what he's done for us that is such wonderful, wonderful news. So before we share the good news, first we need to share the bad news. You know, every Christian is called to share the gospel. We've all been giving that call, and you know we see this ministry of John the Baptist, and oh, that was great for him. But in real reality, what God called John the Baptist to do is, is very similar to what he's called all believers to do, is to get out and proclaim the gospel, get out and reach people with the good news of what Jesus has done. And we need to share not only what he did on the cross, but also the reality that he did that because people are sinners in need of it. You know, I find very interesting, if you ever study through church history, and you see these great revivals, large groups of people coming to salvation, coming to accept what Jesus has done for them. And almost every single occurrence, you see this pattern that takes place. And the pattern is you have this small group of people repenting of their sins. It's very, very interesting. Almost every revival that you see, if you read it, it's a small group of people, usually in someone's home or someplace, and they're all just crying out to God, recognizing we're horrible sinners and we repent of our sin. And in that moment of great repentance and recognition of we need you, we need salvation, we need you to help us, boom, the move of the Spirit goes, and you just see thousands upon thousands of people getting saved. And you see that in almost every one of the revivals that we see through church history. 2 Chronicles 7.14 says something that's very important to remember. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and repent from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will hear their land. You know, today in our world, we, we think, you know, if we just get this politician or this politician or whatever, then our country is going to be great and everything's going to work. No, if we will come and repent before the Lord, that's when the change is really going to happen. You know, if we just continue to say, well, we'll just vote this person or that person, then things are just going to continue. The way that this country is really going to change, we say, oh, we, we've strayed from the Lord. If we can just get this politician to get us back. No, it's not politicians' responsibility to get back. We as the church should be reaching people with the gospel. That's what's going to get this nation back to serving God, back to loving God. It's our calling to proclaim the gospel. And until that happens... You know, we're not going to see a real shift, I don't believe, in the United States until we really see the gospel proclaimed, the people getting saved, and lives transformed. 
So this message of repentance that John shared with people is, is definitely an important message, not only for his day, but for today as well. People need to know they're sinners. They need to humble themselves before God, repent, and ask for forgiveness. So John preaches his message of repentance, and now we're going to see how people respond. It's a pretty in-your-face message, so do people reject, do people accept? Let's see. Verse 10. So the people asked him, saying, What shall we do then? He answered and said to them, He who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. Then tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more taxes than what has been appointed to you. Likewise the soldiers asked him, saying, And what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely, and be content with your wages. So after hearing this message, this very intense, in-your-face, repent-of-your-sin message, we see that the question that the people ask in response to this is, what shall we do then? If we're sinners and we need to repent, what do we need to do? You know, this is a great response when either God or a person reveals sin in your life. It shows that I am serious about wanting to repent, about wanting to turn away that first question of, what do I need to do? All right, I see this problem in my life now. What do I need to do? Oftentimes when God or someone else reveals our sin, we don't ask this question, what shall we do? Usually our questions are, who are you to say that to me? Look at your own life, you hypocrite. Why are you telling me I have these issues in my own life? We get very defensive. We get very prideful. Worry about your own life and leave me alone. Instead of humbling ourselves and recognizing, hey, if someone's pointing this out, or especially if God's pointing this out, I need to look and see, is this something that is in my life? And if it is, I need to change. I need to repent. I need to turn away from these things. What shall I do? That should be our hearts. Humility and recognizing, I want to be more like the Lord, and I need to turn from these things if I'm going to. So John's listeners, they ask him this great question, what shall we do? And and he responds just giving them some very good practical advice. He has different groups. Tax collectors come and say it. And then uh, soldiers come and say it. And and they're running, what can we practically do to turn away from the things that we're doing? And John's instructions are very ordinary. He commands that people share, that they be fair with each other, that they're not mean or cruel, that they're happy with what they get. I mean, these are things that we teach our children. These are just the foundational things of, you know what, if you're going to live a life that you should, these are the types of things that you should be doing. True repentance brings a noticeable change in someone's life. And that's the huge difference between sadness and repentance, because you can be sad for a few days, but your life just goes on just like it was. When you repent, there's a change, a change that people see, because you're not doing what you were doing before. And people recognize that. Oh, you used to be a total jerk and you're not anymore. Oh, you used to treat people like this and you don't anymore. You used to live like this and you don't anymore. It should be obvious. It should be something that people see. And that's one of the best things to draw people to Christianity because they recognize, look at what you used to be. What in the world changed your life? And that's when you can say, that's Jesus. I accepted him. He's changed my life. I know I was a total jerk. I was this or that. Look what God has done. Look what he's doing. Yes, I still make mistakes, but yet he's changing me, and I'm glad you can recognize that, and that's a wonderful testimony to help people see it's real. It's true. Verse 15. Now, as the people were in expectation and all reasoned in their hearts about John, whether he was the Christ or not, John answered, saying to all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal straps I'm not worthy to loose. 
He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barns. With the chaff, he will burn with unquenchable fire. And with many other exhortations, he preached to the people. So they're, they're recognizing, man, you're, you're a special guy, John. And, and people are starting to wonder, is this the Messiah? Is this it? Is this John? Is he the one we've been waiting for? And so they ask him, John, are you the Messiah? And notice his response. He says, I indeed baptize you with water. But there's one mightier than I who's coming, whose sandal straps I'm not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit in fire. Now this phrase, whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to lose, that just kind of brushes right over our head. We think, well, what's the significance of that? Well, in that culture, it was very significant because rabbis ultimately had people, they were teachers, people would be under them, and they could pretty much tell the people who were under them to do most anything, uh, and they would do it. But the one thing that was like, I will never tell you to do because it's too lowly, it's only for slaves to do, is to untie my sandals and take my sandals off my feet. Remember, in those times, you walked on dirt roads, your feet were really nasty. That's why in John chapter 13, when Jesus washes their feet, Peter's like, you're not going to wash my feet. He's doing that because that was only the lowliest slaves who would do that. And Jesus shows, hey, I want you to act like lowly slaves. I want you to serve others. But here we have this mindset of, I'm not even worthy to undo his sandal straps which is something that no rabbi would ever ask of someone else because it was seen as, you know, that's the worst thing. You're, you're, you're a lowly slave. And John basically saying, Jesus is so much greater than I, I'm not even worthy to do the worst possible thing, undo uh, his sandal straps. And saying, you know, where he is and where I am, there's no comparison. He's so much more worthy than me. And I think that's so significant because here's a man who has a pretty significant ministry. People are thinking, you're super special. We're actually even wondering if you're the Messiah. And he could have just been like, yeah, I am wonderful. God's given me this special place of preparing the way for Jesus. I'm not quite as good as Jesus, but I mean, goodness, I, I'm preparing the way. I'm a pretty special guy. I mean, he could have definitely promoted himself as really great. And people would have responded like, oh, you are great. But we see through his ministry a man who recognizes his real place, who is very humble, recognizes where Jesus is versus where he is, and he always responded with this humility of, I'm not worthy at all. And I think that's something that, especially as we get called into ministry, I think one of the biggest things that hinders our ministry is this pride, this thought of, I'm so special, I'm so great, and we recognize that, you know, we, we miss this reality of where God is, how worthy he is versus where I am. And we start thinking, I'm so wonderful, and I'm so special. And that's a great way to, to hinder what the Lord wants to do in and through you. He's the only one who is worthy of worship and praise, never us. John goes on to say, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit in fire. Hey, I baptize you in water. The Messiah, he's going to baptize you in something much greater. He's going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit. Remember uh, the day of Pentecost, you know, the Spirit of God is on them like tongues of fire. And he's saying, you know, this is what he's going to give. I'm just putting you in water. He has the power to, to give you the Holy Spirit. And so what he's bringing is so much more significant than what I'm bringing. I'm just preparing you. He's going to be the one who saves you and fills you with the Holy Spirit. But he also says when the Messiah comes, he's going to separate the wheat from the chaff. Now, in the Old Testament, this is a very common thing. The wheat were those that were followers of God. The chaff were those that were not. And so as he's using this terminology, those listening would have been very aware of that. The wheat is ultimately speaking of believers in Jesus, and the chaff is speaking of those who have rejected him. But notice what he says. He says, Jesus will burn the chaff with unquenchable fire. This is a reference ultimately to John the Baptist bringing of hell. 
Those who've rejected Jesus, they're going to be, that's their punishment. That's the ultimate judgment that they're going to have, is they're going to be cast into hell where there is unquenchable fire. You know, I think the reality that people are going to hell should be a huge motivation for us to share the gospel. I mean, we recognize what's going to happen. You know, that's not a subject matter we like to talk about. Oftentimes when we see it in Scripture, we skip past it because it's pretty intense. Jesus actually says more about hell than anyone else. And we think, well, Jesus has always just said, just love people. Well, he's the one who reveals what happens when you reject him. The reality of that should hit us pretty hard when we recognize, you know what? We have loved ones. We have family. We have friends. We have people that we know that don't know Christ. And that should motivate us and encourage us to share with them. Because the reality is, if they don't accept Christ in this life, that's what's going to happen. Luke ends with many other exhortations he preached to the people. John shared a lot of things. Luke just gives us a little you know, snapshot of one of his main messages, one of the main things that he shared of just this message of repentance. But he says, you know, he had a lot more to exhort the people with. Jesus is the same. We see only a little bit of what he actually taught Luke chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. But Herod the Tetrarch, being rebuked by John concerning Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, and for all the evils which Herod had done, also added this, above all, that he shut John in the prison. So we've already noted that John's a pretty in-your-face guy. And here's an example of John. You know what? He didn't care who it was that he was sharing with. Here's a man who's in power. Herod, he took over for his dad. He's there. You know what Herod wants to do? His brother Philip has a wife that he likes. And so he wants that wife for himself. Comes to John the Baptist. John the Baptist finds out about it and says, absolutely not. That is completely ungodly, completely unbiblical. If you take someone else's wife and make them your own, that's adultery. And then he goes on to tell him other things that he's doing wrong. And Herod doesn't like it. Herod doesn't want to hear the truth. And just like I said before, when this is brought to your attention, you're in sin. Usually our response isn't like the crowd. What should we do to change? Herod's like, you dare say that to me. I'll throw you into prison. Uh, that's how he deals with it, and if you read the other Gospels, you find that he actually has John executed, chops his head off, because uh, he doesn't like the fact that John would dare say these things to him, that John would tell him the truth. And I think it's a good warning for us, one that we shouldn't be man-pleasers, we shouldn't think, well, well, here's a person with great prestige and power, and you know, so we're not going to tell them the truth because they have too much power. You know, we see throughout the world Christians getting persecuted. And they can say, well, you know, this government here doesn't want us, and if we, you know, proclaim the gospel, if we speak the truth, then we'll be cast into prison, maybe we'll be killed. But we're seeing, you know, they're not shying away from that. They're saying, you know, I'm going to stand for the truth. I'm going to stand for what's right, regardless of the consequences. That's what John does. Yeah, it costs him ultimately his freedom and then ultimately his life. But he was a man to say, you know what, I'm not going to you know, bow down to the world's philosophies. I'm going to stick to what's true. They're claiming this isn't sin. Well, the Bible says it is, and I'm going to make sure that they know it. In our culture, in our government, even in the church world, we have lots of things that the Bible clearly says is sin, and the culture is saying, that's not sin. How dare you say that's sin? Why don't you be more tolerant of people? And we need to be those who say, well, hey, we're not the ones who are just coming up with this. God says this is sinful. God says this is wrong. And regardless of what you think, we don't care. We're going to still preach the truth, because this is what the Bible says, and we're not you know, apologetic about it. We're going to proclaim it boldly, because we know that God's word is true. And you know, this culture is definitely trying to get the church to just say, you know, oh, it's okay to do this, and it's okay to do that, even though the Bible clearly says, no, it's not. Uh, we've got to be like John and say, you know, we're going to stand for the truth, regardless of what the consequences might be. Verse 21. When all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized. 
And while he prayed, the heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form, like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven which said, You are my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. And so as John the Baptist is baptizing people, all of a sudden Jesus comes on the scene, and we see other Gospels where John's like, I'm not going to baptize you, you should be baptizing me. And Jesus says, no, we need to do this ultimately to fulfill all the Old Testament things. And this is interesting because I already mentioned John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. Well, Jesus is sinless. He has nothing to repent for. So why is Jesus here going to get baptized? Well, ultimately, just like Jesus does a lot of things that he didn't necessarily need to do, he wants to identify with us and be an example for us. We need to be baptized. If you haven't been baptized, that's something that you need to be doing. That's something that the Lord commanded you to do. Come talk with me. We'll arrange that. But Jesus did it as an you know, example to us. He didn't have to be. He was the one who was sinless. But yet he does it as an example of, hey, I wanted to live like you and be the example of what you and I need to do. And we see something very interesting right after this happens. The Holy Spirit descends in bodily form like a dove upon Jesus. And then this voice from heaven says, this is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. Now, why this is interesting is because you've probably heard the word Trinity. Have you not? You'll notice that that word is not in your Bible. It's just a description of the fact that we have one God in three persons. And we've used the word Trinity to describe that. Here's one of the instances where we see that. We see the one God in three persons all at one event. We have Jesus in the water being baptized. We have the Holy Spirit descending like a dove. And we have the voice of the Father saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And so here we see the Trinity all at once at work. And so when we're talking about the Trinity, someone says, Well, show me in the Bible that word. Well, that's not what we're going to show in the Bible because we're going to show, Well, I'll show you what it means. One God, three persons. Here's one instance of that reality. Uh, so the voice saying, My beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. This leaves no doubt. This isn't just another sinner being baptized. This is the Messiah. This is the one who has come to take away the sins of the world. And the Father is saying, my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now Luke finishes this chapter with something that I'm, you probably just normally just say, well, we'll skip right to chapter 4 now. Because it's a genealogy. Uh, most people don't really like genealogies because there's a lot of hard to pronounce names, which is true. Um, but especially to the Jews, genealogies were very, very important. And I want you also to recognize the Messiah had to come through a certain line. It was prophesied that he would have to follow a certain line of people. And so if he did not do that, then he couldn't be the Messiah. And so Luke, once again, being very much a historian, he wants to say, okay, I want to prove that Jesus came through the proper line. Now, Luke takes his genealogy all the way back to the beginning with Adam. So there are going to be names in this genealogy that you recognize. There's going to be names that you don't recognize. And there's going to be names that I brutalized. But that's okay, because I can have one of you read it if you like. But Verses 23 through 28. Now, Jesus himself began ministry at about 30 years of age. And that's important to note. And that's what I mentioned before. John the Baptist was about 30 when he started. He's a little bit older than Jesus. Uh, but Jesus started that at that time. Being as was supposed, make a mental note of that. We're going to get back. The son of Joseph the son of Heli, the son of Matat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jana, the son of Joseph, the son of Matthew, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Naga, the son of Ma, the son of Matapia, the son of Semi, the son of Joseph, the son of Judah, the son of Jonas, the son of Reza, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of 
Shijalite, most of these are names you probably don't know. Uh, the son of Nezri, the son of Melki, the son of Adi, the son of Kosum, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joseph, the son of Eliezer, the son of Joram, the son of Mattath, the son of Levi, you should know that one, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonah, the son of Elkim, the son of Mila, the son of Menon, the son of Mattath, the son of Nathan, now we should get some names you should know, the son of David, as in David and Goliath, the son of Jesse, David's dad, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, Boaz and Ruth, uh, the son of Salmon, the son of Nation, the son of Abimad, the son of Ram, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, those should all should be familiar, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Surug, the son of Ru, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphax, the son of Shem, like Ham, Shem, and Japheth, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mehael, the son of Canaan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, ultimately the son of God. So I thought we'd all read that together again. Wow. Be fun. <laughs> <laughs> so genealogies are very important. Now this one, the one that the Messiah had to come, he had to come through the line of David. And so I noted that David is um, part of Jesus's lineage. Uh, he's going to sit on David's throne for all eternity. Uh, so in order for Jesus to be the Messiah, he had to come through that line, he had to come through the line of Seth. But uh, in this genealogy, Luke reveals that Jesus was of the tribe of Judah, of the descendants of David, which is another proof that he is the Messiah. Now, you might get someone to come to you and they'll say, you know what, I found uh, a contradiction in the Bible. And they're going to come and they're going to show you, look at Matthew has a genealogy. And Luke has a genealogy, and I want you to compare the names. You're going to open up Matthew, and you're going to, okay, you're going to read the names. You're going to open up Luke, and you're going to read the names. You're like, oh my goodness, these names are different. We have this huge problem. Can I trust the Bible? There's this huge contradiction. Well, people try to come at the Bible with that. There's a simple, obvious answer to it. Matthew is giving a genealogy of Joseph, uh, and Luke is giving the genealogy of Mary. All of us have two genealogies. All of us have two parents, and we can trace our genealogy back through both of those parents. So there's no contradiction. But notice at the beginning, this is why people think it's a contradiction, because both Matthew and Luke say Joseph at the beginning. But if you notice, um, Luke says, being as supposed, was supposed the son of Joseph. You see, we have an interesting thing with Jesus. It's a virgin birth, a miraculous birth. Joseph isn't his real father. The Holy Spirit is the one who impregnated Mary, not Joseph. But it was not proper in that time to put a woman in the lineage. You always had to put the father. And so he puts, as was supposed, Joseph. Joseph isn't his real father. Uh, it's just the one that raised him on earth. His real father is the heavenly father. So I'm going to follow his real line, which is through Mary, which you normally wouldn't do. Uh, but he gives the line of Mary because that's the true line because Joseph didn't have any part uh, in Jesus' line. But Matthew gives Joseph line because it was important that you would follow the, math, uh, the man's line within the uh, Jewish culture. Uh, and so Matthew has uh, Joseph's line. Mary has Jesus, uh, Luke has uh, Mary's line. Uh, and so there's no contradiction at all. Uh, it's just looking at two different lines, which we all have. Uh, and so whenever someone comes, oh, there's this contradiction. Uh, just recognize, you know, all you need to do is do a little investigation. You'll find out, actually, there's not a contradiction at all. And this is just one of those instances. So in this chapter of Luke, we see this ministry of John the Baptist, this ministry of preparation. And it's a very powerful ministry of a man who gets, and he's bold, and he's willing to tell people the truth. You are a sinner, 
and you need salvation. You need to repent and turn away of your sin, and Jesus Christ, the Messiah, will come and he will save you. You know, I find it interesting that one of the last words that Jesus gives to us, his followers, we see in Matthew 29, 19, he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We also see in Mark, it says, Go and preach the gospel to everybody. You know, Jesus ultimately says, You have a similar calling to John. You and I are called to go out and preach the gospel. And actually, he even says, Make disciples and baptize them. Uh, you know, baptism is normally, we have them in church and, and we do them in that setting, but there's no you know, prerequisite of you have to be a pastor or you have to be some kind of specially ordained person to baptize someone. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, we see it through the book of Acts, people baptize other people. Uh, but, you know, this calling of, hey, proclaim the gospel, do what ultimately John the Baptist was doing, and it's sharing the full gospel with people, telling them not only the good news, but also the bad news. You know, be tactful, and, but the reality is, hey, share with them the reality that they are sinners and the consequences of those sins, um, and encourage them, once they accept Christ, to get baptized. But, you know, I find interesting, there are two days a year that people will usually come to church more frequently or willingly than any other time, and that's Easter and Christmas. Next Sunday is Easter. And so people that maybe you've invited to church before, or maybe you think, oh, they're pretty hard and they would never want to come. You know what? This might be that one time a year and they think, well, if Christianity is something that's true, I'll at least go to church twice a year so I can be in God's good book. You know, and there's that kind of mindset. Of like, if I at least go once or twice, then you know, at least I can say I went to church. So this is a great time. We have flyers out here. I want to encourage you to invite your friends. Invite your family, invite your co-workers, invite your neighbors. You know, a couple weeks ago, we ended with praying for those five people that we really wanted to see accept the Lord. Hey, those are great five people to invite to church. We're going to be looking at the resurrection. Uh, I'll be sharing the gospel completely. Uh, I'll make it clear not only you know, our sin and the consequences, but what Christ has done. So, you know, for those who have never heard it, this will be a great time uh, for them to come. And so, on Saturday as well, this coming Saturday at 10 o'clock, we're going to meet at my house, we're going to take a time to pray, then we're going to go out to the parks and different areas, and we're going to take the flyers, we're going to try to engage people, invite them to church, and you know, share their gospel to see what the Lord will open up in that time. So if you have uh, Saturday free, we'd love for you to come out and be a part of that, uh, and to see if we can reach people in the community for the Lord. So um, let's just pray, let's just ask the Lord for that boldness. I know so often it's a struggle to be like John. Uh, it's a struggle to have boldness in a culture that says, you know, that message is so intolerant, that message is so wrong, how dare you proclaim that? You know, and, and sometimes we think, oh, you know, how is someone going to respond to me? And there's this fear that comes upon me. Oh, if I tell them about Jesus, are they going to think of me, you know, weird? Or are they going to get upset? Or if I tell them, you know what, you need to be forgiven of your sins, how are they going to respond? And, you know, there's oftentimes this fear and recognize that's not from the Lord. The Bible says God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and of sound mind. That fear is from the enemy who is desperate to keep you silent. He does not want you to open your mouth. He does not want you to proclaim the truth of what God has done to people because he wants to keep them in darkness. And he knows this is the one message that will bring the light of what Christ has done to them. And so he wants you to be quiet. And if you're quiet, he's happy. And so when that fear comes, you know, just pray. Lord, give me moments. Help me just to share the truth. Share your love with this person that I desperately want to see come to know the Lord. And if all you are able to do at this point in time is say, you know what, why don't you come to church? Hey, I'll even come and pick you up. Uh, invite them, bring them on out, uh, and I will be sharing the gospel clearly next week. So let's just ask the Lord to, to give us that boldness.